Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, in these increasingly perilous times, Father, we remain your children. In a situation you warned us would come, in a situation that many believers have been in throughout history, but it's intensifying. Father, we've never seen anything like this on an international level. And we know what it means. And we know that you have a purpose to place us here at this time. Thank you, Lord God, that you are our provider, that you are our guide, and that one way or another, you are our protector. We thank you that the final victory is in Jesus. The enemy knows his time is short, Lord, but let us also know his time is short and we have a work to do. Be with us tonight, Lord God, as we ponder your word. Speak to us from your word by your spirit in the name of your son who saved us, Jesus. Meet with us tonight, Jesus. Amen. I don't know why, but we've had a couple of uh, <clears throat> misannouncements. Uh, perhaps it's my fault. I said we should skip over Psalm 23 because we have it up on uh, Moriel TV already um, from the Hebrew, translating every, every word of every verse. Uh, but I didn't mean to go to Psalm 24. <laughs> that perhaps is my bad communication. We'll be looking tonight at Psalm 21 and 22. Tonight we'll conclude the first portion of our study in Psalms, Messiah, and Prophecy, because again, in the Hebrew canon, Psalms is not one book, it's multiple books. Next week, we will begin with the second book of Psalms, as it is in the Hebrew canon, with Psalm 42. So we'll be looking at second book of Psalms, as the Psalms are in the original text. But tonight we'll be doing our conclusive study on Psalms from the first book of Psalms, chapters 21 and 22. Additionally, there was a mistake concerning our word for the weekend on RTN and on Moriel TV this um, Saturday evening, UK time, uh, as Revelation 5. We did Revelation 5 last week. We outlined Revelation 5 last week. We'll be beginning Revelation 6, the prologue to the four horsemen, will be this Saturday. The four, prologue to the four horsemen will be Saturday. That'll be Revelation 6, not Revelation 5. So please don't think that you've already seen what's going to happen if you had seen the announcement. Uh, it's just an error, but we're on target now. Turn with me, please, if you will, to Psalm 21 and 22. Psalm 21 is to a choir director. It's something meant to be sung in praise and in worship. It does not have a direct connection with what follows it, which is a Psalm of David, uh, also to the musical director, but it has some other spe specific specifications with it. Um, more than in a moment. Let's look at Psalm 21. O Lord, in your strength, the king will be glad. And in your salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. 
for you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. A fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. But you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Up until verse 7. Up until verse 7, we have a dual meaning to the text. It is about King David in his situation at that time and God's purpose and promises for David. But secondly, it is David as a type of Christ, as we've said, as king, as conqueror, as good shepherd. David always prefigures Jesus as king, conqueror, and shepherd. Okay. He has more to do with Christ in his second coming than in his first. In his first coming, it's the shepherd aspect of David that reflects Christ. But in his second coming, it's the royal, it's the regal, it's the king or kingly aspect that foreshadows Jesus. So up until verse 7, we're talking here uh, almost, you might say, ambiguously. We're speaking about David and however David's circumstances may apply to us. But we're speaking about David as a type, a shadow of Jesus. So let's take those first verses initially. O oh Lord, in your strength, the king will be glad. Remember, David was lowly. He was the youngest of his brothers. He was raised up as an unexpected candidate to replace King Saul. David did not operate in his own strength because initially he didn't have much. His strength was always in the Lord. From the time he was a little boy, he could kill the lions and slay the bears. And he made it clear in his Psalms, it's because the Lord was with him that he was able to do this. But then, of course, he becomes what he is. Well, Jesus is the same. Jesus had divine power and could have used it. Because he was God, as we've said before, he could have walked on the water, raised Lazarus from the dead, cured the leprosy, 
or fed the 5,000, or raised himself from the dead. As God, Jesus could have done any one of those things because he was God. But he was fully human, as well as fully divine. He identifies with us, as we studied when we did Philippians, and he never once used his divine power. Jesus never once used his divine power. We saw this, for instance, when we cited Luke 5, 17, the dunamis, the power of the Lord was there for him to perform healing. Satan, he had to have that power there before he would do it. Not before he could do it, but before he would do it. He could have done it as God in his own right. Um, so too, Satan in the temptation narrative tries to tempt Jesus to use his divine power out of concert with the Father. Here, turn the stones into bread. Your God, you can do this. He was trying to get Jesus to behave as God instead of as man, because only when he behaved as man could he bring salvation to man as the second Adam who would reverse the curse of the first Adam and right the wrongs of the first Adam. So anything Jesus did, it was always in the strength of God. Oh Lord, in your strength, the king will be glad. It was the strength of the father. He never used his own power. Much like David foreshadows this. And in your salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. Remember, Jesus on earth as a man was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He knew this world was fallen. He knew it was no good. He knew it was in Satan's grip. He knew what it would come to. He knew that even those who believed in him or even the Hebrews who were faithful to God under the Torah, even they had sinned and needed his salvation. Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Yet he rejoices now. He rejoices now. Remember in Hebrews, when he despised what was happening to him in his crucifixion, he despised it. But he considered the joy set before him. He considered the joy set before him. This teaches us about the joy of the Lord being our strength. In this life, we're told in God's philosophy, Ecclesiastes, make the best of a bad situation. Make the best of a bad situation. That's God's philosophy of life in Ecclesiastes. The joy of the Lord always has to do with what's coming, with what's coming. Our focus always has to be on what's coming. Today, I receive very sad news from both Israel and from England. In England, the leader of the Moriel Fellowship in Bristol, England, came from Bristol. His oldest son died today of motor neuron disease, a very cruel disease at the age of 49. I knew him. Father called me up, told me he lost his son. Not easy. But that was the second blow. The first blow was when I woke up, checked the email. I got the email from our branch in Israel that John Theodore, who we've all been praying for, lost his battle last night. He's now with the Lord. 
Now, that's to his advantage, but it's very much to our loss. He has a family, and he was a great asset <clears throat> to the body of, 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 of Yeshua, of Jesus, of Christ in Israel. Very sad day for me. Double barrel announcement, two obituaries. <clears throat> well, that's life. How can you hope or trust in something that always is going to end this way unless the rapture happens first? How can you trust in something that has no future? You see people striving to get ahead in a fallen world hopelessly. We go back to the ancient Egyptians and the pharaohs putting treasures inside of their tombs and inside the pyramids trying to take it with them. I remember in New York as a kid, the mafia dons would get killed by each other and things like this, and they'd build these big mausoleums, these palatial mausoleums in a, in a cemetery in Queens, New York, and this was known as the Tombs of the Dons, and they, 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 they put their corpses into these palatial structures with the marble and all this, trying to take it with them. Well, they're not taking it with them. They're not taking it with them. We take it with us. We take it with us. The meek shall inherit the earth. We get this place. Don't trust in it now. Trust in what's coming. We get this place. Then we get something even better. The new heaven and the new earth. We get this. We get this place. Satan knows this. Daniel 7.21 is an important verse. Mark it. This kingdom will be given to the saints of the Most High. Satan has to make war against us now because he knows we are taking over. He knows he's going to be displaced. His followers are going to be displaced. And this is going to be given to the children of God. He knows that. The world. Who wants to be captain of the Titanic? The scriptures tell us, even if things get good, even if wealth increases, don't set your heart on it. It's nothing nearly as good as what's going to come. Don't set your heart on it. It'll drag you down if you set your heart on it. Well, let's look. So it continues. He rejoices in his salvation. You've given him his heart's desire and not withheld the request of his lips. What was Jesus' heart's desire? What was the request of his lips? We see this in a number of places in Scripture, but the two places we see it most conspicuously are in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, where Jesus makes the request of his lips known to his father. Now, Father, glorify me, in verse 5, together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me 
is from you. For the world which you gave me, I have given to them. The word which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed me and that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I don't ask on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those you have given me. What was the desire of Jesus, our, our king? What did he ask from God? What did he ask from his father? What was the request of his lips? You and me. Us. How undeservedly privileged we are. No matter how rotten this life is. Got some photos from Vietnam yesterday, day before yesterday, of the mountain Christians that we are connected with, mainly in the Zhao tribe and the Hmong tribe, who are hated by the communist authorities. And the gospel is proliferating among them. But in the current food shortage, the government is just ignoring them. They don't have any food, don't have anything. And we this is the second time we've had to do it. But thank God we were able to do it. Bail them out. And you should see them taking that rice and the kids eating the rice. We're going to put the pictures on our website. And so grateful to God for a rotten bowl of rice. We gave him some other things. But just grateful to God for a bowl of rice. <laughs> They don't love this world. There's nothing in this world for them. There's nothing in this world for them. They just want Jesus to come. Well, that's a persecuted church. I've said many times, and I say it at every opportunity almost. Again, I've seen, I said this many times. I don't know at the risk of sounding like a broken record. I've seen true Christians in Great Britain. I've seen true Christians in South Africa. I've seen true Christians in Australia and New Zealand and Canada. I've seen true Christians in the USA and in Singapore and Holland. I've seen true Christians in many countries. I've seen true believers in Israel. I've seen true Christians in many places. But the only place I have ever seen true Christianity, like the Book of Acts, is where the church is persecuted. You want to see true Christians? Thank God we have fellowship with true Christians. But you want to see true Christianity? <laughs> Come with me to some of the countries I've been to. There I can show you true Christianity. Well, before Jesus comes back, the whole world's going to be like that for us. The Lord is going to teach us not to trust in this life, not to want it, to long for nothing but him and for him to come back. He's going to let these things happen. He's going to use persecution to clean the garbage out of the backslidden church. He's going to use persecution to weed out the faithful remnant of Laodicea. He's going to use opposition. He's going to use difficulty. We're all going to be like the Hmong and the Sao people in the mountains of Vietnam. Different locations, different cultures. It's like this in areas of Africa. It's like this in areas of Asia. Mark my words, before the Lord comes, it's going to be like this in Brisbane, Australia. 
It's going to be like this in California. It's going to be like this in Cornwall. It's going to be like this in Germany. It's going to be like this everywhere. It's not going to get better in the long term. There'll be interim periods of respite. Things will seem to get better, and the world will be deceived by the false improvement. The Antichrist will bring a false hope and a false peace. All that's going to happen. But for us, <laughs> the Lord is going to put us into a state where we long for nothing but him and his return. We're going to have that longing like the early church. That's what's going to happen. And he will return. We have to understand these things in the times in which we live. We've got plenty of true Christians. Not enough, but I've met enough of them. True Christians. But Jesus is looking for true Christianity. This is what he's coming for. A spotless bride. We've got to get cleaned up. He's got to clean us up. The, the bridal gown needs to be dry clean. <laughs> the garments have to be spotless. What I'm saying is persecution becomes a necessary evil. That's why God allows it. Persecution becomes a necessary evil. That's why God allows it. Well, let's go. The request, Father, give me these out of the world. They've kept your word. Jesus asked the Father for you and for me. And his request was granted. That's why we're here now. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. Yes, it's about David. But it's also about what we call in Hebrew, Hamelech Hamlachim, the king of kings. He asked life of you and you gave it to him via the resurrection, of course. Length of days forever and ever. David will live forever and ever for the same reason you and I will live forever and ever. We are in Christ and he lives forever and ever. Learn this phrase in Hebrew. Olame, olamim. Olame, olamim. The Greek translates it, enyao tau enyones, from age to ages. Forever and ever, for eternity. Those whom he foreknew from the foundation of the world. And I'm not a Calvinist. But he foreknew us. Let's look. His glory is great for your salvation, splendor and majesty you place upon him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. Jesus rejoices before the throne because of his request. 
when he sees those who are saved, who are born again, who've turned to him, who trust him, who love him, it brings him joy. It is what he requested from the Father. May none of us bring him shame. Yet, so often we drop our crosses. Let's look. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. David would not be shaken. Jesus was fully human as well as fully divine. He was tested to the utmost. Jesus faced trials, valleys, far greater than you and I, as we'll see shortly and see next week. But he was not shaken. Tested, but not shaken. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Here the text shifts now. Now it's talking about David looking upon the Lord. In other words, what had been referred to as the king now is referred to as the hand, the hand. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. The Psalms tell us repeatedly that Yahweh, Jehovah, will bring salvation with his right hand. The right hand of Yahweh is a figure of Christ. So now the text shifts in verse 7. Your hand will find out your enemies. Who are the enemies of God? The ones who don't love Jesus. You either have to love them or hate them. God has used Christ to find out who is the enemy of God. Now you think about it. Unless someone is in Christ, unless they are in Christ, they're considered the enemy of God. We were once his enemies. Oh, people will go to church and be religious and Protestants and Catholics and Jews and whatever they are and humanists and I'm a good person and I'm a humanitarian and I'm a this. We're enemies of God because we're enemies of Christ. It is his right hand. We'll find out as enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire devours them. There is eternal judgment for the wicked. Now, myself, my late brother and friend, David Pawson, Various others have spoken out and warned about the teaching of annihilationism, of course, propounded in Britain by Roger Foster. The late John Stott got into it 
the idea that hell is not eternal and conscious, but the unsaved or annihilated. When you die, if you don't accept Jesus and repent and believe the gospel, when you die, you won't exist anymore. Well, that's what materialistic philosophy teaches anyway. In fact, the New Testament says that. The New Testament actually says, if Christ is not risen, turn to hedonism and make the most you can of life in this fallen world while you're here. If Christ is not risen, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow will be buried. The New Testament says that that's the only thing that makes sense if Christ is not risen. If it is not a fact that Christ is risen, it's the mask of the red death. Have a party. Be a hedonist. Be a whatever. Do what you will. Skull and crossbones. Whatever you want to do, do it. Total hedonism. Nietzschean philosophy on steroids plus. Just go. Go. If Christ is not risen. But he is risen. He will reign forever and ever. Olame, olamim, and yao, tau, and yaunis. In Revelation, the smoke of their torment goes up, and yao, tau, and yaunis. In other words, if hell is not eternal and conscious, there is no scriptural basis exegetically to say that heaven is. It's the same term. If heaven is not eternal and conscious, it's not heaven. But heaven is eternal and conscious, and so is hell. Don't believe these people who've taught error, false teachers like Roger Foster or, or, or John Stott got into the John Stott was also the vehement enemy of Israel. Uh, that man was not good as a theologian. He was not good. He, he was 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 pretty pretty bad actually. Uh, Martin Lloyd Jones knew about him and warned about him. And Martin Lloyd Jones was right. Yet John Stott is revered by people in England. Don't know why, but he is. Uh, this annihilationism is not true. It is not true. There will be an eternal fire. Story continues. Verse 10. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. Now, David here was, of course, speaking of his own enemies, uh, the pagan nations. But sons of men come to destruction. Only sons of God do not. Sons of men come to destruction. Only sons and daughters, obviously, of God do not. When somebody is born, they're among the sons of men. When somebody is born again, they're among the sons of God. Sons of men come to death. Sons of God 
come to life eternal. Let's continue. Verse 11, though they intend evil against you and devise a plot, on a plot, when you see that kind of language, it alludes to, hints at, the ultimate deception of Satan that is known as the mystery of iniquity. The mystery of iniquity. When you see that language, they devise the secret plot. Uh, and it's, it's in various scriptures. But it always alludes to or hints at the ultimate deception of Satan. That is the mystery of iniquity. And of course, it's bound up with the reign of Antichrist, the counterfeit Jesus. Let's look. It will not succeed. Satan is going to desperately try with Antichrist. He's setting the stage for it now. These things we see happening. You'll make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. Arrows are figures of words in scripture. Arrows are figures of words. The bowstring or the bow is what the arrows are shot with, okay? Uh, you'll make them turn their back and you will aim your bowstring at their faces. Well, who are the bowstrings of God? In part, we are. Those who proclaim his word, those who preach the true gospel, those who are his witnesses, we fire his words, and we say it right to the face of the unsaved. But the redeemed of the Lord say so, the scriptures tell us. We say it to their face. This is not to say we get in their face in a rude manner, but they're going to take it as rude. How dare you judge somebody for being a homosexual? That's just a love that they're not speaking name because of homophobic bigots like you. But I'm speaking very kindly about homosexuals. I'm just against homosexuality. The scripture says it's abnormal, anti-natural, morally wrong, and it will destroy them. And as a Christian, I have to love homosexuals and lesbians, and I don't want them to be destroyed. Jesus died for them the same as he died for me. When I was a kid, I was a cocaine addict. My cocaine addiction would have put me in the same hell as those kids or those homosexuals. I don't hate them. I want them to have the salvation and freedom I have. I want them to have eternal life. You're a homophobic bigot. Jesus came in grace and truth. But they still spit in his face and accused him of all sorts. I'm not saying that we should be rude, but I am saying when you tell people the truth, they're going to see it as rude. I hate divorce, saith the Lord. I'm divorced and remarried, and my second husband's a wonderful man. Why did you leave the first one? Oh, we were young and we just didn't get along. How dare you judge me? I'm not. God hates it. 
Now, of course, I'm talking about the world. God will use his bowstrings to fire his words into their faces. You have to face the world for what it is. That's what Jesus did. All of this seeker-friendly rubbish, it doesn't work. It's not a scriptural proclamation of the gospel. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength, David prays and sings. We will sing and praise your power. All this is going on. Nonetheless, we will sing and praise your power. Just think of Paul when he was in prison, and they heard him in the prison singing. <laughs> singing his praises in the prison. I'm in prison now, but I'll be out one way or another. Even if I die here, I'll be out. Unless you repent and believe what I believe, you'll be in hell forever with no way out. You say it to their face. One of the things that persuaded so many people in the Roman Empire to turn to Christ was the testimony of Christians who are willing to die for what they believed. In the face of lions and things like that, They killed them for public entertainment. Well, there are people today who would murder Christians for public entertainment. There's been people in the United States and in other countries that have gone into churches with a gun and murdered people for no reason other than that they were Christians. Well, let's look. We come to Psalm 22. This is a powerful psalm. Now, I want to look at this psalm a little differently than the one we've looked at, the first one we looked at it devotionally. Okay. I let Hahash Ahar. It's where he was when he was delivering this. And David writes, now, this psalm, obviously, is a prophetic psalm. It's not a devotional psalm. It's a prophetic one. We had a devotional one. Now we have a prophetic one. Yes, it is sung, but it is a message in song. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance or the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. You are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were delivered. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But I'm a worm, not a man, a reproach of men 
and despised by the people. All who see me snare at me. They separate with their lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Oh boy. Whatever David was going through, he could not have pre-shadowed Christ more closely. We know what Jesus said on the cross in Aramaic. In the crucifixion, his words were, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But notice this. Jesus says this in Aramaic. In Aramaic, not Hebrew, not Greek. Even in the Greek New Testament, the author was inspired to use the Aramaic. In Hebrew, it would be Eli, Eli. In Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi. They're similar. It was the Hebrew dialect of uh, Chaldee, specifically the Galilean dialect. And it's acutely conspicuous that it's in Aramaic, not Greek, not translated, not Hebrew. Greek? No. It's Hebrew? No. It's Aramaic. Aramaic is overlooked. There's a chapter in the post-captivity prophets that's in Aramaic, and a, the largest section of the book of Daniel is in Aramaic. We think of Greek and Hebrew. Aramaic is the third language. And it's very important for a number of reasons. One of which it was the spoken, the primary spoken language of Jesus. Now, let's understand this further. He's fully human, fully divine. It is known from the recovery of voice boxes, of recorder boxes after airline crashes, that the flight crew, no matter what was happening, although by international convention, English is the language of aerial navigation for all commercial aircraft. English is the language. It doesn't matter if it's Scandinavian Airlines. It doesn't matter if it's El Al Airlines. It doesn't matter if it's Air China. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, uh, Japan Airlines. It doesn't matter if it's Garuda Airlines or whatever. The language of international flight, talking to the air traffic controllers and to other planes is English. But when a plane is in trouble and it's going down, the flight crew tends to revert to its mother tongue, talking to each other. They may be speaking English to the flight controllers looking for help, but to each other, they're speaking their mother tongue. Why is that? In a crisis, people tend to revert to their mother tongue. Now, this tells us two things. One, it tells us, obviously, that Jesus 
spoke Aramaic as his main language. Some have tried to say or hypothesize he spoke Hebrew. He spoke Aramaic as his main language. You can read certain Syriac texts, uh, but he spoke Aramaic. Second thing it tells us, in his humanity, he calls out in a desperate prayer in his mother tongue. He was just a man devoid of his divine power being used. Now just think, he could have used his divine power on the cross. Can you imagine facing a Roman crucifixion, the flogging, and the Roman flogging goes with the bone tissue, ripping the flesh down to the muscle tissue to the skeleton almost? That would alone would cause hemorrhage, arterial bleeding. And then being nailed to a cross and the diaphragm being unable to expand. Not, Romans, uh, the French, sorry, crucified cadavers in France, uh, Roman style. And then they did autopsies, post-mortems on the cadavers. The cadavers, of course, were kept respirating on artificial life support systems. They were brain dead, but they were breathing. And <clears throat> the heart was beating. And they did the autopsies, the post-mortems, and they determined that Jesus would have died from pericardial effusion. Oh, my Lord. He wouldn't have been able to breathe. It would have been a suffocation. And the only way he could have breathed was to pull himself up by those nails to allow the diaphragm to expand in the chest cavity. Now, he would have had hypovolemic shock and various other things, according to the autopsies. No wonder he died. They didn't have to break his bones the way they did with the malefactors. But can you imagine being in that state, in that state, being tortured and not using your divine power? Or asking the Father to send three legions of angels to rescue you? He could have done that. But he didn't. Nobody has ever been tested to that utmost like Christ. He could have very easily saved his neck, stopped the torture, stopped unspeakable physical torment on top of the anguish of his soul. But when he was up there, he made that other prayer, Father, forgive them. Forgive Jacob Prash. I know he should be up here instead of me, but forgive him. Forgive Sandy Simpson. Forgive Tim Quinn. Forgive them, Father. Forgive Elizabeth Campbell. I know they belong up here instead of me. They're guilty. I'm innocent. Remember the previous psalm. The Lord heeds the request of his lips. Unbelievable. How magnificent. He could have got himself off the hook. No trouble. 
what he saw you and me. So we didn't do it. He died a curse of God so we wouldn't have to. That's always the basis of the Christian message. And of course, penal substitution is being rejected, taught against. I think of that disgusting book, The Shack, and how many ignorant, naive Christians, undiscerning, thought it was a wonderful book when its author, William B. Young, denied that Jesus died for sin. Or it's Steve Chalk in England teaching the young people of Britain that God the Father is the quintessential cosmic child abuser if Jesus died for sin. They deny the just for the unjust. They deny he died in our place. They do not believe the gospel. They claim to be evangelical. They say they're born again. They say this. They say that. But they are not Christian by any biblical definition. That is not Christianity. So let's look at Matthew 27. Verse 35, they gamble for his clothes. The rich man's robe, you can go to the Lothasistras on what is now called Via Della Rosa in the old city of Jerusalem. I've been there many times. You can see the markings of the Roman legion on the floor. Now, the ones there now may be recycled stones from the first century. The 10th Roman legion were there 100 years later. We can't be sure that those are the ones of Jesus, or if they were second century ones, or if they were a second century reconstruction using the first century ones. But we know where the Fortress Antonia was, and we know that that's where the game was played, where they gamble for his clothes. Now look at this. Verse 39. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, also with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, he saved others, but he can't even save himself. Oh, yes, he could have. He certainly could have saved himself. But instead, he chose to save Jacob Prash. He chose to save me. He chose to save you. That's who we trust. That's who we follow. That's who we believe in. He's worth living for, and he's worth dying for, because he lived for us, and he died for us, and we were worth nothing. They're mocking him. What does it say in Psalm 22? I'm a worm. I'm despised by the people. They sneer at me. 
Verse 7, they sneered me with their lips. They wagged their head. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. And so we see in Matthew's nativity narrative, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Come on down from that cross. Come on, you're the Messiah. You're God's son. Get off that cross. And he could have did it. But if he got off, we would be doomed. Now look what he says. We go down to verse 45. The sixth hour of the darkness fell. We have a teaching on the book of Amos. We deal with what that means. But he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabechthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Torah says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He died accursed of God. Barring the possibility of the rapture, which is a viable possibility, you or I are going to give up the ghost unless the rapture happens, you or I are going to give up the ghost. The only reason we will not die accursed of God is because Jesus did. What a message. It's simple. Anybody can understand it. But let's look. It continues. In verse 9, it begins speaking about the phenomena we call parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis. He was born of a virgin. Okay. Now let's look. It was you who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust one upon my mother's breast. Upon you I will, will cast from birth. I was cast. You have been my God from my mother's womb. There's only two people in Scripture that that is indicative of. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're a young Christian married couple, expecting your first child or expecting a child. The children of believers, although not saved, are still sanctified through the faith of their parents until such an age as they can be born again of their own volition and understanding. They're not seen as the same as the offspring biologically of, of, of unsaved people. However, with Jesus is something different. And with John the Baptist, somehow we did this on our teaching, men not like other men. He recognized Jesus from his mother's womb. 
That teaches something about Elijah to come, but I digress. It's in the book, Harpezo. We talk about it. From his mother's womb, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. This refers or has a direct connection with something that has not been written yet. Uh, Isaiah 7.14, a virgin shall conceive, a virgin shall conceive. Now here the game gets tricky because this psalm is so important in witnessing to Jewish people. We translated a virgin shall conceive. The Greek word, the, sorry, the he, Greek word for virgin is parthenos. The Hebrew word for virgin is betula, betula. The Hebrew word for a young woman is alma, alma. Isaiah 7, 14 says, an alma shall conceive and it will be a sign. Well, there's no particular sign in a young woman becoming pregnant that happens every day of the week. It happens every minute of every hour. And Alma shall conceive. It's no, that's not a sign. Seven times, seven times the Septuagint translates Alma as Parthenos, virgin. The ancient scribes understood Alma to be a virtual synonym for Betula. In the Hebrew culture, premarital sex was seen as a very serious sin and grounds for divorce. If somebody got engaged to an Alma and they found out she was not a Betula, that's why Joseph wanted to get rid of Mary. <laughs> In that culture, it was just taken for granted that a woman was a virgin. A young woman was a virgin until her marriage. It was taken for granted. Uh, seven times the Septuagint translates it Parthenos. Now, I have to go into a bit of academic theology. I hope I don't bore you. The Old Testament, as you have it in your Bible in English, if you're reading it in English, is known as the Masoretic Text. Masoretic Text. The New Testament, however, more than 80% of the time quotes from the Septuagint, not the Masoretic. The Septuagint has two properties. This is supported in part by Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. There is evidence for it. The first is that the Septuagint was translated from older Hebrew manuscripts than the Masoretic. Okay. It's more authoritative. That's why the New Testament uses it. The fact that the New Testament prefers it, for want of an easier way to put it, shows that it's more authoritative than the later rabbinic editions or renditions. Uh, okay. Um, 
That's the first thing. The second thing it shows is it is how the ancient rabbis before the time of Christ understood the Hebrew. It's a powerful argument. It comes into play in a number of passages. For instance, Leviticus 13, without the shedding of blood, there will be no forgiveness of sin. That's quoted in the epistle to the Hebrews. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Well, an Orthodox Jew will say, that's not what it says in the Masoretic Hebrew. And they'd be right. But it is what it says in the Septuagint. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. You have no blood atonement for your sin. No temple, no high priest, none of that. Your sin is not forgiven by the Torah. The other opponent of this that will have an absolute conniption and you'll send their blood pressure through the roof if you tell them that the Masoretic was redacted and that there are older manuscripts that the Septuagint follows and the New Testament normally follows the Septuagint, not the Masoretic. I speak of the Ruckmanites, better known as King James only people. They are ridiculous. I can show clearly where even the King James 1611 translation of the King James does not even accurately translate the Masoretic. But they completely ignore the fact that the New Testament follows the Tertullian in quoting the old. So we have reference here to Isaiah 714 a virgin shall conceive. Jesus is conceived of the Holy Spirit. From his mother's womb, he is unique with a partial, partial exception of John the Baptist who recognized him as divine and as Messiah. Antinatally. Let's look. From birth. Be not far from me in time of trouble. Can you imagine from his mother's womb, from the instant of conception by the Holy Spirit, Parthenogenesis, born of a virgin, God was always with him, but now God is going to depart from him. Now it begins. Trouble's near. There's none to help. Nobody's going to help Jesus. It's not what the Romans were doing. It's not what the Sanhedrin were doing. It's not even what Satan was doing. It was the will of the Lord to slay him in our place. Verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Bashan is the lower, is the southeastern uh, section of the Golden Heights. Uh, or the southern Golden Heights, say the southern Golden Heights. It's next to Gilead. Okay. And it 
was and to this day is a grazing area. The cows of Bashan. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. Now we can talk about the bulls of Bashan and cows of Bashan. They usually have a negative connotation in scripture and they're figures of a certain kind of people, but I don't want to go there right now. But many surround him. They open wide their mouth at me as a roaring people are surrounding him, yelling at him, cursing him. Not realizing they're cursing him for their own sin. Let's look. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. It's interesting. He died of pericardial effusion medically. That's what happened. His heart was like wax. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared. Dehydrated clay. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. In other words, he's completely dehydrated from the bleeding and the perspiration. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. Again, he would have had to pull himself up by the nails. The nails were not through the metacarpal. The nails were through the radius. Metacarpal could not sustain it, the weight. He had to pull himself up by the radius. And when you do that, the rib cage becomes evident. The rib cage protrudes. You get a protruding rib cage when, when, when you do that. He counts the bones. They're out of joint. Uh, the bones have to do with the structure, the structure of God's word, but they're out of joint. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. Jesus is the word made flesh. The skeleton is the... What do you call girders and panels of the building? <laughs> you got the facade of the building, but the building itself, the erector set, you know, uh, that's the skeleton. All the soft tissue hangs on the hard tissue. Okay. When the hard tissue goes out of joint, you got a problem. It was like the word failed him. The word failed him on the cross because he became the embodiment of sin. The word did not fail, but it failed him. The promises of God for deliverance and salvation that were for the fathers, that were for the patriarchs, that was for David, that was not for him. He was accursed. It was only in the resurrection this would be rectified and reversed. The bones pop out of joint. Things just don't add up. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. 
the life of God, becoming a man for the life of man who wants to be his own God? It continues. He's surrounded by the Romans. Remember, we've talked before how dogs is a Hebrew metaphor for pagans. Remember Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman? I can't give the children's food to dogs. Of course, the term is diminutive. It's like puppies, but we explain this. Look at this. What does it say? They've encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. Hebrew lesson. When you use this in evangelizing Jewish people in England, in Golders Green, or, or Childwall in Liverpool, or Presswich in Manchester, or, or, or wherever, you know, I, New York, Lower East Side, or, or Borough Park in Brooklyn, or 47th Street, or whatever. St. Kilda's in Melbourne. When you go to Orthodox Jews with this, the Masoretic gets it wrong. The Masoretic says, it is not say pierced. It says like a lion. The spelling is very close. Like a lion is ke'ari. Ke'ari, like Arie uh, means lion, or Ariel, the lion of God. Ke'ari. But pierced is Ke'eru. The Hebrew letter I, Ke'ari, is a Yod, Yod. The Hebrew letter Ke'aru, you, long you in English, is a vav. A vav is an extended yod. It's just a yod with a stem on it. It would appear that the scribes extended the yod to make it sound like a lion because the psalm presented problems. That is a possibility. It was not a scribal error, but a scribal intent, uh, doctrine of the text. Uh, rabbis have played these games before. Maimonides played the game with the Hebrew word achad, meaning plural oneness, where yachid was single oneness. But he made achad yachid, the point away from the Trinity. So it's achad shtayim shalosh instead of yachid shtayim shalosh. There's another technical explanation I will not bore you with. My wife can explain it much better than me. My wife, well, she's a math teacher, but she has a degree in Hebrew from Israel as well. It's called Mem Kriya, Mem Kriya. But unless you know Hebrew, there's no point in me even talking about it. And my, my wife could do it better than me anyway. But let's understand this. How do we get around this? If you're witnessing to an Orthodox Jew and they say, no, it says like a lion, it doesn't say pierced. Ka'ari, ka'ru. The Septuagint says pierced. 
the Syriac texts say pierced. Later, the Vulgate does, but that doesn't count. The Septuagint says pierced, and the Syriac, that is the Aramaic texts that we have, say pierced. But here's what you go to next. Zechariah chapter 12. Oh, it doesn't mean the Messiah was pierced. Again, this is for people who witness the Jews. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour it on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look upon me who they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. There is no question, no dispute that Zechariah 12.10 says pierced even in the Masoretic. And Rashi, he is a crucially important rabbi in Judaism who said Isaiah 53 is about Israel, not about the Messiah. The earlier rabbis said Isaiah 53 is about the suffering Messiah. Rashi changed it to be about Israel. That same Rashi who said Isaiah 53 is not about the suffering Messiah, the same Rashi said that Zechariah 12.10, the Messiah will be pierced, is about the Messiah, the son of Joseph. His exact words. So if you're witnessing to an Orthodox Jew, the Septuagint says it, the Syriac says it, the ancient scribes understood it as pierced, but let's look. Rashi even says the Messiah is pierced in Zechariah 12.10. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, that was just interpolated later to make it seem like Jesus was fulfilling it. The gospel writers interpolated that, or they put it in there to make it seem. Nobody can choose the circumstances of their death, per se. Crucifixion wasn't even invented yet, at least not in the Middle East. But 600 years before the Romans began crucifying people, this prophecy happened. How could Jesus have known, or how could the apostles have known, or how could anybody have known he was going to die this way? He couldn't have chosen the circumstances of his death. And even the rabbinic literature, the Talmud, says, that he died by crucifixion. The rabbis agree he died crucified by the Romans. How did he know that ahead of time? Well, he knew it ahead of time because he was the Messiah. He was pre-existent. He was eternally God. And the Ruach Kodesh, the Holy Spirit, inspired David to write it, but then it continues. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. What did we just read again in Matthew 27? 
Let's look at it again. Verse 35, when they crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots, a dice game. Now, again, these garments are figurative of something deep. The garments of Jesus in Revelation are the combination of royal and priestly colors, and they relate to the garments of salvation with which he covers us. But let's look. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, be not far off. You're my help and my assurance. Deliver my soul from the sword. My only life in the power, the power of the dog, that is the Roman pagan government. Save me from the lion's mouth, being Satan in figure, and the horns of wild oxen. You answer me, his own people who are goring him. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I'll praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All your descendants of Jacob glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. A time will come when all Israel will be saved, we're told in Romans, those who survive. For he's not despised nor aborted aboard the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. David was rescued. Jesus wasn't. Jesus was resurrected. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. You see the same literary structure you see in the previous psalm. After they gamble for his clothes, it becomes primarily Davidic. It's David's account. It's not primarily about what the Messiah is saying. It's David talking about God. I'll pay my vows to him. Now look at this verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. We have people tonight here from South Africa and Australia. We have people here from many countries. We have Irish people. We have African people. We have German people. We have some Asian people. Doesn't matter. All the nations will worship the Jewish God because of the Messiah fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 11. Now it is partial. In the millennium, it'll be total. All the nations will come and worship him in Jerusalem. Zechariah 14. Let's look. For his kingdom is the Lord's in verse 28. He rules over the nations. In the millennium, he will be there on the throne of David 
All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. And all those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even the dead will worship him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It'll be told of the Lord to the coming generation. You think the Romans crucified thousands. They crucified thousands of Jews. But people only remember the name of one of them. Posterity will serve him. It'll be told of the Lord to coming generations. You read Josephus, how many Jews the Romans crucified? They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be, be born that he has performed it. People not even born at that time. People who would be born in future generations were going to be told of him and what he did, says David. Well, he did it. And just like the text says, 2,000 years later, we're talking about him tonight. It's the central event in history, but not the ultimate event in history. That's coming. That even seems to be on the horizon. But just like David said, we're still talking about him. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. From Vietnam to China, to India, to Africa, North and South America, Far East. Right now, there's people talking about him. And we're going to keep on talking about him. The nations are going to hate him until he gets dominion over them. They'll be swashed. We will be the foundations of the new nations. Quite a story. And so it is. The Psalm of Crucifixion. Psalm 22.